0: I take great pride in the fact that I think that I can get along with most anyone. Now, you may disagree with that, but there, there's one personality type that really, if I'm honest, it just kind of grates me. I think if you're honest, there's probably a personality type that gets under your skin as well. But for me, that one personality type that I just, it just really gets all over my nerves is when someone tries to always one up you. You know what I'm talking about? It doesn't matter how great something that your kid did, guess what? My kid did something better than your kid. It doesn't matter how terrible it is. Let me tell you how sick I am. Let me tell you about how bad today I was. Well, guess what? I got something worse than what you had going on. It just gets on my nerves. I call it the, the me monster. All they want to talk about is me, myself, and I. In the words of the great theologian Toby Keith, he said, all I want to do is talk about me, right? Do you remember that song? My favorite comedian is a guy by the name of Brian Regan, and he talks about this, this fact of saying I, he wishes he just had one particular accomplishment in life, that if he had this one accomplishment at any party, when someone tries to one-up him, that he literally could say this one thing, and it'd be like the ultimate mic drop, okay, the ultimate, hey, the game's over. I want you to watch this two-minute video clip and tell me if you can identify with this type of person.
1: Why do people need to top other people? I've never understood it and I see it all the time. Obviously, people get something out of it. At best, people wait for your lips to stop. Yeah, as soon as... Okay, yeah, you, me! Me. you see the difference you see you see that now I do what is it about the human condition people get something out of that that's why I have a social fantasy I wish I was one of the 12 astronauts who have been on our moon they must love knowing they can be anybody's story whenever they want They can sit back quietly at a dinner party while some other person, some me monster's doing his thing, and let him go, let him run with the line, while you be quiet. Oh, really? (laughs) Let him have his moment. Yeah, I'm a big traveler. I have my business. all I got my own global enterprise. I got to check on. You know, driving in the Autobahn because I keep a fleet of sports cars over in Zurich. And I got a Swiss account that I want to check on. Not Pilmanjaro expedition. Might have to cancel that. You know, runways and Aspen are a lot shorter the first time you go in there. You know, you know, you know Pacific Rim company going to try to take that over. And global enterprise. <laughs> I walked on the moon. (laughs) Well, you have the floor, moonwalker. (laughs) You know, you mentioned driving on the Autobahn, that reminded me. Once I was driving in the sea of tranquility. (laughs) In my lunar rover. And I, too, was worried about our speed till I remembered, wait, we're the only ones
0: on the moon. In honor of the 50th anniversary, I've been holding that clip until this week um, to think of all of our NASA employees, both former and current. I wish that we, too, could say that, right? But as we travel through the book of John, one of the interesting things is that when John describes the miracles of Jesus, he does so in a really simplistic, straightforward, unpretentious way. He could have gone on and on and said, man, let me tell you about how incredible these miracles are. But he really, it's just pretty simple. In fact, look at how he writes about this unreal feeding of up to 20,000 people. This is all he says. John chapter 6, verses 11 from two Sundays ago. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? It's almost like he's sitting around the, the table at Logan saying, hey, pass the bread. I mean, it's not that big of a deal when he's describing it. Then last Sunday, we talked about Jesus walking on water. Look how John describes it here. John chapter six, verse 19. When they had rowed the boat three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Not very elaborate, is it? It's Just simple, straightforward. It's almost as if John is trying to hurry or rush through the miracle in order to spend a majority of his time focusing on the message or the, 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 the um what Jesus is about to say after the miracle. You see, while Jesus' miracles reveal his divine power, it's actually his words that correctly define who he is. Jesus didn't come just to be some miracle worker. No, he's the son of God. He's the Messiah, and his miracles and his words, they validate him as coming from God himself. That's why today we're going to take some time and we're going to dig into what Jesus had to say after he had performed this miracle. Actually, it was several miracles. John chapter 6, it begins with the feeding of up to 20,000 people. Then we go to Jesus um, walking on water. But remember, we also have Peter walking on water. We also have the calming of the storm. And then the disciples instantly ended up where they were supposed to be as soon as Jesus gets in the boat. So let's pick up our story in John chapter 6. We'll start today in verse 22. It says, On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So we'll stop there for a minute because we need to understand that the previous evening, that after the miracle had had been um, performed, that many in the crowd, they wanted to force Jesus to become king. So what does Jesus do with his disciples? He puts them in a boat and he sends them on a boat towards Capernaum. Now the next morning, many woke up and they continued their journey onto Jerusalem. Remember, that was the end journey because they were on their way to celebrate the Feast of Passover. But some in that crowd, they they woke up and they go looking for Jesus. They're almost like, you can almost imagine, they're saying, what kind of miracle can he perform now? Almost like they're waiting for another free meal. So they had waited all night, they wake up, and then they remembered that Jesus sent his disciples on a boat up ahead, and now when they can't find Jesus, they're confused. So they hired some boats from Tiberias, and they get the boats, and they, they, they travel the boats across the sea, and they get to Capernaum, and it's there that they find Jesus who's in the synagogue. Now the people were confused. How did Jesus get here before us when we know he didn't take a boat and we just took a boat? So how did this happen? See, the crowd, many of whom had experienced the miracle the day before, they were seeking Jesus, but they were doing so for wrong reasons. They were following Jesus. Why? Because they wanted to know what they could get from Jesus. They weren't seeking him in order to worship him. They weren't seeking him in order to obey him. But think about this, the night before they had just experienced not only this miracle of of, of the food and filling of their stomachs, but if you remember it says that when Jesus arrived, remember he was coming from a a large crowd and he wanted to get away but he gets there and there's lots of people there and the first thing it says in John chapter 6 actually is that he performed many miracles and he healed many of the people there. So they had seen not only the filling of their stomachs but they had also seen the healing of physical bodies that were there but instead of responding with a humble genuine worship the way that the disciples responded last week when Jesus gets into the boat with them instead of responding that way they simply wanted more from Jesus the crowd at this moment they had no interest in worshiping or obeying Jesus what do they want? They simply wanted him to meet their physical needs, to meet their demands. In church, sadly, today, some things still haven't changed. Today this goes by a different title. It goes by the title of the prosperity gospel in which people think that the reason that we are here is so that God revolves around our world to meet our physical needs, to give us what we desire, and to meet what we want in our life. That God exists to bless us each and every day. But let's look closely at these three questions that the, the crowd is going to ask Jesus. And then I want us to pay particular attention to how Jesus responds to them. The first question we see the crowd ask Jesus is found in verses 25 through 27. It says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they, meaning the crowd, said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, what's interesting here is that when they ask this question, when did you get here, that Jesus purposefully, he intentionally doesn't answer the question. But instead in verse 26, what does he do? He moves on to to display, to show them the authority that he has over them. And whenever Jesus uses the phrase truly, truly, it's something that we need to hold on to. In fact, Jesus says, truly I tell you, more than 100 times throughout the four gospels. The word truly is the Greek form of the Hebrew word meaning amen or amen. And what does it mean? It means let it be so. Now, in the Old Testament and the epistles, normally uh, you would see here amen at the end of a passage. Today in church services, many people will say amen after a message that the preacher gives or a song that the congregation sings or the the choir sings. I must admit that we are missing our number one amen -er, Ronnie Davis, this morning who suffered a stroke this past week, and so we need to continue to remember him in prayer. But that's what it means when you say amen. It's let it be so. Lord, would that come true in our lives today? But what's interesting is that Jesus alone has the authority to say amen, not at the end, but he says it at the beginning. And when he says that, he's showing us that he has unequalled authority in what he says. And whenever he says this word back-to-back, truly, truly, it's something which we ought to pay particular attention to. And as we're about to approach the very first I am statement of Jesus, we're going to see that he is going to say truly, truly on four different occasions when he refers to himself as the bread of life. One thing that we know about Jesus is that he always knew people's hearts. He always knew their motives. So at this moment, he knows that as the crowd is seeking him, that they want more than just to to, to fill their stomachs once again. They want to make him king. But why do they want to make Jesus king at this moment? Because they think that he's going to provide all of their physical needs. He's going to provide all the healing that they are looking for. And then maybe he's going to give them the political freedom that they've been longing for. Nowhere in this passage do we see that they're seeking to make Jesus king for the reason for which he came, which was to provide spiritual freedom. What do the people want? The people wanted to ring a bell to have Jesus' service without interrupting their daily life. They were more interested in the provision of the miracle than the meaning that was behind it. One of my kids' favorite books to read at night right now is If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. You heard that book before? There's all sorts of variations of that book. I think the more recent one was If You Give a Pig a Pancake. Um, The one that we're reading right now is um, uh If You Take a Mouse to the Movies. And in this book, you have the, the, the little boy, and he takes his mouse to the movies, and when he goes to the movies, he has to get him what? He has to get him popcorn, he has to get him a drink, and it happens to be Christmas, so he wants to listen to Christmas music. Then he wants to go decorate the Christmas tree, and then the mouse wants to go out and have a snowball fight and build a snowman, and on and on and on. The main point of the story is that the mouse will never be what? Content. That's what seems to be going on here with the crowd, Nothing that Jesus was doing for them was enough. Why? Because they weren't seeking Jesus, they were seeking things from Jesus. The root issue of why they were clamoring, why they were going to Jesus, was because of their own selfishness. Now quick aside here before we get back to the text. John refers to these miracles of Jesus as signs. Why does he call them a sign instead of a miracle? The reason that he refers them as a sign because Jesus performs these works to point them to himself as the Messiah. It's a sign pointing them to the one true answer, the longing of their heart. But sadly, for most of the people that Jesus performs these signs and they experience these signs, they miss the sign of Jesus standing there in front of them. So Jesus continues in verse 27. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Very clearly here, Jesus commands us not to put our whole life's effort into things that can satisfy and sustain us um, only materially with things. There are things that we can long after, that we can go after, and they're fine. They can be fun, They can be beneficial for life, but they will never satisfy us completely. Church, if we spend the majority of our life focusing on things of this world, what Jesus calls food that perishes, we will waste our life. We were made for more than just the mundane things of getting up in the morning and going to work and coming home and doing it all over again. Yes, we must do that. But if that is where we are going to find our contentment, we will never be content. Because we were made to live our lives on food that doesn't spoil on things of eternity. Later, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, he points us out again. He says in Matthew 16, 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? But church, when our primary focus is on God's word, when our primary focus is on fulfilling God's commands, then our lives will produce things that will last for eternity. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told his disciples, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Friends, Jesus is to be the center of our activity, he is to be the center of our efforts. Jesus said that we are to seek him and to seek his righteousness above all things. And when we do, watch what happens he will supply our every single need. All we have to do is focus on glorifying him. All we have to do is focus on our lives, on enjoying him. Church, how freeing is that? By the way, this everlasting food that Jesus talks about, he says he gives it to us as a gift. He's making it as clear as possible that we can never earn it, that we can never deserve it. And friend, if you don't hear anything else that I say the rest of this morning, Here's what I don't want you to miss. And that is that no one can earn God's gift of eternal life by hard work or merit. It's a gift. And it's a gift that he freely gives to all who believe. Now let's look at the second question that the crowd asked him. Verses 28 through 29. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, Jesus continually, he had spoken of one essential work that was necessary for salvation. So the logical question would be for the disciples to come up, Jesus said, okay, Jesus, what is that one all-important, all-encompassing work that we must uh, do, that we must achieve in order to have this, this eternal life with you? But they made a fatal error. The fatal error in their question, it's not that they're asking the question, it's that they took the word work and they made it a plural and they said, what are the what? Works of God. What did they want? They wanted a list. They wanted a list of works that they would do that would then entitle them to receive eternal life. But Jesus very clearly said, no, no, friend, listen, the work, singular, of God is this. Here's the work, to believe In him. Jesus' perfect, righteous life and his sacrificial death on our behalf, it is the one work that God requires. And thank goodness it's the one work that God accepts. Please don't miss this because I think so many people that were raised in church, I'm one of them, that we've heard the gospel and we've heard the message of Jesus over and over again, but I think that we don't quite understand the true meaning of grace And what I want you to understand is that God doesn't ask us to obey him in order to win his love. He doesn't say, in order for me to to accept you, then you've got to obey me. In order for me to, to win my approval, in order to have eternal life, you must obey me. No, he asks us to believe in his son. And then true obedience and good works follow the desire to honor and please your maker. So let me ask you, how are you trying to add to the one work of Christ? What are you trying to do apart from the atoning sacrificial death of Jesus Christ to say this is what's going to make me feel valued? This is what's going to give me worth. This is what's going to make God finally be proud of me. What are the efforts that you're trying to add to the one work of Jesus? Friends, there's nothing more freeing in life than to know that you are loved, to know that you are valued, to know that you are accepted by the one true holy God, not based on your own works, not based on your own efforts, but based on Christ's work on your behalf. And finally, the third question that they ask in verses 30 through 33. So they said to him, here's the third question, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In essence, what the disciples are saying is they're coming to Jesus and, hey, look, it was really cool what you did yesterday. We really liked that miracle where you fed all those people and we got to have some of that bread. but, But you know what? Now we're wanting something more. Now we're wanting you, if you want us to believe in you, if you want us to believe that you are who you say you are, then do something even greater. Give us a miracle on par with the prophet Moses. And Moses, he fed the children of Israel for 40 years, six days a week, by giving them bread from heaven. If you'll do that, then we'll finally believe that you truly are the Son of God. What just happened? The miracle the day before, now what? It's not enough. Now they say, God, if you can just do another miracle for us, now if you can just meet our need one more time, then we'll finally believe in you. And church, before we cast a doubtful or critical eye on that crowd, let us not forget how quick we are to forget God's blessings and his provisions to us over and over and over again. Think about what we've been given. We've been given through the Bible the entire record of Jesus' work. We have Jesus' own words in the Bible. Most of us have dozens of copies of God's word laying around in our house. We have the entire story of God's plan of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. Yet how many times do we come before God in our quiet time and say, but God, if you could just do this one additional thing for me, then I'll really follow you. If you'll do one more thing for me, then then I'll know that's who you say you are. And notice that Jesus corrects them. He said, no, it really wasn't Moses that gave that bread. It was God who provided that bread. And then they make, in verse 34, this incredibly ridiculous, bold demand of Jesus. Think about this. After all that Jesus says, look what they say in verse 34. They said to him, sir, give us this bread. What's that last word? Always. Always. They completely missed Jesus' point. Their continual desire for Jesus to, to, for, to use Jesus to meet their physical needs, it's demonstrated right here in this demand that they say, "Now we want more physical bread." Church, let me warn you, there are plenty of shallow, temporary followers of Jesus who fill up churches every single Sunday morning looking for a Savior who will meet their needs and meet their demands. There are also dozens of churches in our country that are willing to accommodate their demands, to say that your world exists, that you exist for the world to be met by a Savior coming and meeting your needs. That's not the purpose of Jesus. Dr. David Jeremiah wrote an article this week that some of you I saw was published on Facebook. Listen to this warning that he said about churches. The church is coming under attack. It's forgotten what the church is supposed to be. We're not an entertainment service. We're not here to see how close we can get to what the world does. But there's so much of the world and the church and vice versa that we can't tell a difference. Hear me on this. Our desire should never to be, we're gonna do whatever it takes so that we can be the biggest church in town. We're gonna do whatever we, it takes so we can get the most Facebook likes. We're gonna do whatever we t- it takes so that people can be talking about us. No, our desire as a church should be to say, we want to be as centered around God's word as possible so that every single day the followers of Jesus that we're making an impact on the kingdom of God. That is why we exist. That is our focus, that is our charge, and that is our command. Let's look at how Jesus responded to this demand. Verses 35 through 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Here we have the very first of the seven I am statements of Jesus. Jesus says, I am the what? Bread of life. The people wanted Jesus for the things that he could give them but what they didn't realize was that Jesus was truly all that they needed. Jesus uses two words here. He uses the words come and believe. Both of those words that they are requirements for salvation. It's a once-in-all a transaction that takes place, that once we come to Jesus, that it's a one-time commitment that we make to follow him, that we lay our lives down before him. But then also, that if we want to receive daily nourishment, that we will continually come back to him so that we'll find our worth and value. To come to Christ, it means that we're going to forsake our old life of sin and rebellion, and that we are going to submit to him as our Savior and Lord. To believe in Christ. It means that we are going to trust in Jesus completely as the Son of God, as the Messiah. To acknowledge that salvation comes through Him alone. But I want to pause here for just a second. Because my bet is that if we take a survey of everyone in this room, most of us would say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's not really what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying that you just believe mentally. He's saying this is a belief that moves into action, that this belief that Jesus is the Messiah, that this belief that he's my Lord and Savior, that it's going to change every single aspect of my life. It's going to change what I watch. It's going to change how I talk. It's going to change how I live. It's going to change my priorities. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Friends, it's no coincidence that where was Jesus born? Bethlehem, you know what Bethlehem means? The city of bread. It was prophesied about hundreds of years before he was born in the book of Micah. It's no coincidence that the word Jesus became flesh and we broke it. This was all planned by the Lord for our redemption. Jesus is the bread of life. He's our sustenance. And according to verse 35, whoever comes to him will never hunger again. Whoever believes in him will once again never thirst. So let me ask you, how satisfied are you in Jesus? How satisfied are you in Jesus? Do you seek fulfillment from other people? Do you seek fulfillment from other things in your life? Because, friend, when your satisfaction, when your security is based on anyone or anything other than Jesus, you will constantly, daily be disappointed. Because people, especially people who are closest to you, they will let you down constantly. And if it's material possessions that you're after, material possessions that you think will finally make you happy, let me ask you this. When will you have enough? When will you finally say, that's enough, I don't need anything else. Now I'm happy. I finally have all that I, no, no, no. You're always going to crave more. The truth is we always need more, but that more never ends. To know God, to serve him, to love him, to experience his love, his joy, his peace. It's a far greater gift than any material possession can ever give you. Jesus is our greatest need. We know that. But the last question I have for you is is he your greatest desire? Do you desire Jesus more than anything else in your life? Would you pray with me? Dearly Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. For we know that he is the one, true, ultimate sacrifice. That by the death on the cross, that he took the wrath that only was um, ours to receive. And he paid for it by his blood. We thank you that he truly is the bread of life. And that for those of us who have come to him, that we will never hunger, that we will never thirst again. But Lord, I pray for those here today that have never trusted your son as their savior. I pray that today they would stop trying to earn your love. They would stop trying to deserve your love and they would receive the free gift of salvation that you offer each and every one of us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.